Graham Goodwin. Holy moly. Holy cow. Holy floors and tires. No, we'll stay away from those. It's time for the weekend sports cars brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, our pets, your wife and my wife, and I would say the spirit of Daytona Sebring and Le Mans. Does that sound about right, Graham Goodwin? It sounds a very good uh, little collection of the, the, the people and the things we love. And uh, amongst those, of course, are our listeners. Always great to have them with us on what's a highlight for your week, I know, and certainly for mine. Um, lots going on again, MP. Uh, we're either you know we're either in the wake of news or we've kind of got the crest, the wave of news approaching us at high rate of knots. Um, a lot of it in the in the questions uh, this week. But uh, what's going on in, in the the news stateside that uh, you want to kind of have a quick monologue about, if you like, this week? Well, there's a lot going on. I'm going to officially divest myself from the, I think Cadillac is going to announce their LMDH program this week or that week uh, game because I lose it every time. Um, So that's one item there. You are indeed correct. Lots going on. Not necessarily everything we're ready to write about at the moment, but dear sports car fans, we will indeed have plenty to fill you in on. I know that we've got the... uh, Salem, six hours of the Glen coming up here. Uh, what starting practice in about seven days, and then we get to stay and play at Watkins again. So, lots going on there. Mention one thing, Graham, before we get going with the show, and you, as the official selector, who tells us which category we uh, we start from and move to, be it IMSA, WEC, Aslam, Elms, ACO, uh, General and Fun. Would love to mention, dear listeners of Twisk, that, hey, been busy over the last week or two or however long putting together something brand new for your mirth and delight, I hope. It is a merchandise page on marshallpruittpodcast.com. So, yes, indeed, just yesterday, a uh, box of stickers arrived at our front door, and all four of our new for 2021 Twisk stickers happen to be up and for sale. These they're rather large, they're beautiful, they're rugged. Uh, we have the Ferrari F40 IMSA GTO machine driven by Jean Lacey, something I got to see back in the day, 1989. That weekend sports cars sticker is up. The one that I think might be our favorite, Graham, the uh, Peugeot with pets sticker. Where, 100%. yes, we just took our name off the, the masthead there. So it's the weekend sports cars with uh, Rosie and Rocky. Those are our two cats. And your delightful husky, Oscar, is a good boy. A very, very good boy. Um, with the two of us and our pets standing behind a gorgeous Peugeot 908 HDI FAP. So that is available. We then have the glorious 1987 IMSA GTO Toyota Celica which I would, if I was born elsewhere, I'd probably pronounce it Celica. But nonetheless, that sticker is available. And then closing, oh, I, it's just one of my favorite prototypes ever. I'm not saying because it was successful. It just looked amazing. That being the uh, 2003 Lister LMP, which our man Roger Warwick has done with art, with you and I racing two of them in scale form. I can never pronounce that word. So long story short, dear listener, we have a brand new merchandise page. And there are show stickers you can buy. There are other sports car items you can buy there. Sticker form, 
magnet form, a button form. And then if you scroll down to the bottom, there is a not heavily populated, but it's growing a memorabilia sales part as well. And we've got hero cards, Porsche RS Spider, uh, Acura notepads, DeFerrin Motorsports, uh, Acura LMP1 CD press kit. Uh, got some what? I'm staring at it now. 2009, 24 hours of Le Mans media guides. Not something made available to the public. Uh, and I think I have a couple of uh, 2014 Nissan Ziad RC 24 hours of Le Mans press kits. The big old kind of poster sized uh, things made by our pals there. So, anyways, if you want to check that out, uh, sometimes y'all ask, hey, how can we help support the show? This is a great way to do it. Uh, if you find stuff you like, take it home, and I'll be adding stuff constantly because I know I have a thousand plus items to uh, to put up in the memorabilia part at least, Graham. So <sighs> the things we do in our spare hours. <laughs> well, you know, we got to keep the literal wall from the literal door, and uh, it's a good way to support this enterprise and support um, the efforts to keep. The lights on, uh, it should be said, around the world. Uh, commercially not been easy, has it, over the last couple of years in motorsport. And uh, we are grateful for you listening. We're grateful for you uh, contributing questions. And again, another bumper bundle this week. Uh, and we're absolutely grateful for the words you pass on, the, the uh, thanks you pass on when we see you trackside. And we hope we'll see many, many more of you trackside very soon. That's all said, MP. You said bumper we, bundle. That makes me so happy. The show's off to a well, rocking start when that happens. <laughs> so um, we better get stuck in, haven't we, into this bumper bundle? I said it twice now. Uh, of questions. And as the selector, I think, as you would normally kind of pronounce it, um, I'm going to go this time with IMSA first. We had, what? I think, uh, the ACO rules racing uh, last week with the um, Portimao race. Uh, on the horizon but let's start with IMSA two big categories you've mentioned one of them already but let's start with something a bit different from Nicholas Cohut and he has said uh, Roger Penske has expressed a desire for an IMSA endurance race at IMS uh, which race currently on the calendar does that threaten if any what say you and uh, I'm sure you know you've got Roger on speed dial uh, hold on just a sec hey Raj which one's going buddy um, I, yeah, that's an interesting question and one that I appreciate because it works from the premise that one must fall for one to rise. I don't know if that's the approach that would be taken though. Would say that, I mean, just overstating a little bit of obvious here, Roger Penske, powerful man, owns one of the world's greatest motor racing circuits. Also, soon to be a returning entrant in IMSA, would say, Graham, we could fairly pontificate and predictificate that if Roger wants something to happen, it will happen. So am I saying that IMSA to IMS is a guarantee? No, but I would say, boy, if we're having to predict and place odds, I don't know when it would happen. I don't know the exact timeline. Is it next year, the year after? Who knows? Uh, Where it would fall on the calendar, I couldn't tell you. But if Roger has an interest, oh boy, that does mean something. Why? 
Well, since he took ownership of IMS in 2020, he has carved some events off that had been, I don't want to say long-standing uh, staples, Graham, but they were you know, not too far from being fixtures or at least annual expectations that, oh, okay, we know we're going to have the Indy 500. No, we're going to have NASCAR there. We know to expect a Indy road course race or two from IndyCar on top of the 500. We know that there's going to be a few other things as well. Roger has said, yeah, not so much. We're going to make some of the things that either aren't money generators or just don't seem to fit with what we want to do. We're going to make those go away. So just sharing in a short amount of time, Roger has altered what we should expect from IMS as an event host. So if he's saying he's interested in IMSA, you can safely assume that that is something he can and will make happen with IMSA. Where can I give you a, can I give you a bit of a perspective here? Of course. Something, something came up last week, and it was such an extraordinary little soundbite, off-the-record soundbite, that it bears repeating. I say off-the-record, I can repeat what was said, but just not who said it. It came from a very senior source within um, Porsche. Um, and it was a, an answer to Patrick a question Dempsey. about <laughs> the process of uh, that double LMDH program, the IMSA and WC program coming together, um, and how and why both deals went to Penske. I'm paraphrasing, but only a bit. But the answer that came back was, you do realize, don't you, they're bigger, Penske, are bigger than we are, Porsche commercially a bigger corporation than Porsche. That gives some kind of yardstick, doesn't it, for exactly what you're saying here, MP, that if he's making that uh, that public declaration that there's interest, it, it has to be taken seriously because of the commercial interests that he's actually got across a whole range of IMSA products, partners, categories, yeah, the strength, for instance, of the motor dealer, um, the auto dealer uh, network in the U.S. and, by the way, in Europe, um, it's it's an extraordinary corporation. When you dig into the layers that are there in the Penske Corporation, more than sixty thousand employees, which is a number that I just it, it staggers me because I grew up in a my hometown of Belmont, California, in the uh, Bay Area here. 28,000, I believe, was the population. So Roger employs more than double the size of the population of the town I grew up in, and it wasn't a small town. So, yeah, that, that part's impressive. But to the main question here, I think Daytona, I think the Rolex 24 dies for uh, the, uh, the uh, indie <laughs> round to live. You know, I mean, it's it's time, right? It's a little old and boring. I don't see much to put on the list, so that's why I think it would be in addition to Daytona, Sebring, they're going nowhere. Mid-Ohio, it's a very popular round, one of the uh, uh, more well-attended rounds that IMSA has that isn't a big you know, marquee endurance event. The uh, Belle Isle event, the one in Detroit that we just had, promoted by Roger Penske. So that's not going anywhere. Watkins Glen, another fixture in the IMSA calendar. 
Lime Rock as well. Been GT only for a little while, but I, I that's not said in a negative. It's become a really awesome staple. Some, I mean, if anything, there's new ownership in place there, so I hope all that's super solid nothing changes. Just say that that is one track that seems like it's always under assault from local whomevers, but assuming nothing negative changes for Lime Rock and everything only gets better, would think that would stay. Road America, again, another fixture. Where IMSA, Graham has, has turned it into their annual state of the union address so i just they look at that event as one that is a pillar after that we have one of my home tracks laguna seca we know that while they went through a little bit of a recent question as to whether that event would stay in the calendar signed a or got an approval to run that through at least 2023 so again if we're thinking of the timeline of this indianapolis event guessing laguna would be on the calendar while that took place Look, uh, Long Beach, again, uh, probably the second biggest event for them in terms of, of fan turnout and whatnot. VIR, another fixture. In Road Atlanta, another fixture. So if I was a betting person, which I'm not because I'm always wrong, I'd say that Indianapolis is an addition to the calendar. Here's a thought, and it is a thought. We're in a process of convergence right now Pervergence. and indeed and we've been you know the, the the key thing here not just in terms of the commercial activity with the manufacturers is for events that make that rock and roll could you see an opportunity here for perhaps uh, when we get back into growth of the calendar a second u.s round that that could be a gathering of the clans we're not going to get that as you know, a joint race in the WC and the and IMSA Daytona. I don't think we're going to get that at uh, Sebring either. The Super Sebring format works uh, for the crowds, which is the important part of that event. But an all new event that could be quite interesting, couldn't it? It absolutely could, uh, and I would hope one that goes into night. Uh, I would love to see some real development here. So, yeah, that's been the dream of doing Indianapolis as a proper into night race, getting lighting in place to do all of that. That would be the big hope. All right, Nicholas, thank you for opening the show here with your question. Graham, I'm going to suggest that like Renger Van de Zanda and Kevin Magnuson, we mash the throttle and get through the rest Let's of this. Uh, so we can get to Weck Azamalmzeko, which interests me. Okay, so we're going to move on. You mentioned Belal, and we've got a couple of questions. First, what I'm delighted to say is from a first-time questioner, John Brost. John, you're very welcome. Says, hi, MP. What's the future of the Belal IMSA race? Given reason for GTLM not racing there, except for this year, it conflicted with Le Mans Prep, and with LMDH taking over from DPI, you'd assume they would now have a conflict with Belal and Le Mans. Corvette looks to be heading in the direction of being able to quickly convert um, GTD Pro to GTE. LMDH, GTD Pro, GTE now have conflicts with Le Mans. Wow. Who's left to run at Belle Isle? <laughs> uh, Matt Nieder, by the way, Matt Nieder has much the same question. After attending the Detroit GP this last weekend, can't stop asking himself, how is Roger Penske making money from the events? He says the expense of putting on the event must be absolutely massive. Three-week setup, 
two-week teardown period. Capacity was supposed to be limited to 8,500 grandstand seats and 2,500 hospitality passes, and even with concessions that couldn't come anywhere near the costs. Clearly, sponsorship must be playing an outsized role. Do we have an idea of how much GM and other larger sponsors are committed to producing the event? Fair questions, both. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'll work backwards here, Matt. Obviously, they don't share the financials with me. I'll keep sending those request emails, though. We do know that, yes, the corporate side is a fairly significant aspect of how this event uh, has existed for quite a while. I've been, I think my first uh, Detroit Grand Prix at Belle Isle was 1996, and it was packed, but even while packed, uh, for, again, the amount of grandstands they put in place and even just the freestanding areas, it was air quote packed but never a, oh my goodness, you can't even walk around because there's no space. So it's never been a giant uh, fan number type event. It has, to your point though, been one that has had pretty significant corporate investment and those hospitality suites, uh, that is a really a big thing that they do there and something that's been quite a success. So I would say that's where things get covered off in this regard would also say that it wouldn't be a surprise knowing how entrenched uh, they happen to be with the, uh, the city and the state that probably some form of, Hey y'all let's adjust what you expect you're going to get from us. What kind of profits would be coming back to the city and whatnot? Let's, you know, let's be realistic here. I would have to assume that that kind of conversation in negotiation took place. So Roger being as successful as he is being so just truly baked into the DNA of Chevrolet and general motors being in the true shadow of the, uh, Renaissance center, the Rens and GM's global headquarters, this being the Chevrolet Detroit grand prix IndyCar race and the, the Chevrolet sports car event and whatnot. This is a home celebration for them. So put all those things together. I can't see anything changing towards the negative here for any period of time when it comes to both IndyCar and IMSA being there. We know getting to uh, to John's question, and thanks for sending this in, John. Welcome to the show, at least among the uh, questioneers. Original plan, Graham, was a little wacky, right? Hey, IMSA, sure, you're going to be part of this like you always are a week earlier by yourself. And thankfully with Lamar moving that need went away. I do think without a doubt, this is going to become a major consideration for Roger knowing that in 2023, he will indeed be back in IMSA as an entrant with cars that you and I, Graham would expect to be headed towards Lamar. So, yeah, this I know we're talking corporate value. Uh, not only will Roger be running the Porsche LMDH program uh, globally, but obviously in this category, IMSA, but we also know, although it's not publicly confirmed, we know Cadillac will be there with an LMDH and the event sponsor. The aforementioned changes, as you, you say here, John, going to... Uh, 
GTD Pro, albeit not in GT3 spec, with modified GTE slash GTLM cars, I would say for sure this is going to be a little little weird. But I think timing-wise, Roger's going to have to, as the person who owns IndyCar, owns the promotional rights and puts on the Detroit Grand Prix, and will be back in IMSA with a giant factory program, uh, they're going to have to come up with something. And I know that's maybe a bit vague of an answer, but it, different than, well, this no longer works, this is probably going to be a, uh, a clash. We're not going to have IMSA as part of Belle Isle each year. They're going to have to do that because I don't foresee General Motors stepping away from being the title sponsor do not foresee them wanting to change anything about the event truly being a, a big celebration for employees, uh, the competition programs, and so on and so forth. What does that mean in terms of scheduling? I would think more than ever, Graham, when we're talking about IndyCar looking to set its 2022, 23, and so on calendars, they will be speaking with Pierre Fion. Uh, more than they've probably ever. Uh, It might be the first time where there's been a real effort to say, hey, what are you thinking for the years ahead? And again, we can always kind of predict middle of June, uh, but hey, what are you thinking about uh, what you're going to do weekend-wise? What are you thinking about Le Mans test days? Let's try and figure out what you're doing in Le Mans. Let's see then how we can schedule Detroit to be complimentary so that we don't have to take all LMDH cars off the entry. And at least, uh, who knows if Corvette will be able to continue to play. But it's too much at stake here for IMSA and some of its manufacturers and factory programs to say, hey, uh, this clash is going to turn the IMSA Bell Isle event into kind of a shell of its former self and not give fans much to be entertained by. So that's my guess. I would say no matter what, there's some sort of General Motors interest that's going to need to be protected. And with Roger now in this pretty important place, both open wheel and sports cars, Graham, I'm sure he will be trying to pull IMSA in as well when it comes to their calendar. Does all this happen on the same Detroit weekend going forward? Do they end up doing what they tried to do this year uh, but no longer needed to and splitting the weekends? I don't know, but it's just, it's interesting how this one event seems like it's kind of a a small deal compared to everything else. It's actually a little bit of a linchpin to uh, how a bunch of entities put their calendars together. It's astonishing. When I read these questions, it sort of looked like almost a, a peripheral issue, but the way you describe it, it is a total keystone, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's uh, it's an important one, that's for sure. And then Honda loves nothing more, at least on the IndyCar side, going to the uh, Chevy Detroit Grand Prix each year, trying to beat the heck out of them. And Chevy does the same thing at any of the, at any of the Honda-supported uh, events. So, you know, there are others who root for it being an ongoing uh, IMSA weekend, IndyCar weekend, you name it just so they can beat up on the people who are putting their name on the event. 
Fabulous stuff. Let's move on. And what I think might be a bit of a quick fire one. You mentioned it already, but uh, both Dan Tenoff and Mark Elkins ask um, on the we we believe still um, due announcement of a Cadillac LMDH program. Uh, Dan says we're on Jim's back porch this weekend. Still no Cadillac G- uh, LMDH announcement. Any guesses now when such an announcement will happen? And Mark says, how do you all feel when none of the hashtag wait and see announcements were announced from Chevy, Cadillac, etc.? What's going on? What do we know, MP? I say they're being jerks. I say they're doing it just because I said they would. <laughs> and so now they're like, well, any opportunity to embarrass that idiot, we're going to do it because we're doing it. We're, we know we're going to. We're just going to wait to make sure that this just humiliates this moron more than he does to himself on a daily basis. I have no clue. I really don't. Uh, I do know, and you and I both know this, Graham, uh, and this is referring to some things we aren't quite ready to talk about, but will soon. There's no doubt as to whether Cadillac will be involved in LMDH. Just whenever they decide to tell us, you know, we'll... uh, will tell you too and i don't think anyone's going to say oh it's amazing what who to thunk it um but <laughs> oh, hey, there'll be one there'll be one guy there'll be that guy it's gonna be ryan kish when he's done after he's done murdering <laughs> goldfish yes yes but yeah uh, i don't know maybe we need to start that the hashtag cadillac lmdh watch right we need to start a countdown clock and I don't know why it'd be a pretty significant waste of time, but you know, it, I'd recommend. Do you think it. there's a possibility there's a senior manager at GM looking for an outrageous way to announce that program than BMW did? Uh, yes, uh, they're going to do it on Friendster or uh, or MySpace. <laughs> they're going to fire up a MySpace account. Um, yeah, uh, no, yeah, no, it's going to be a. Uh, going to be a tiktok dance from uh gm's mark royce yes that's what it's going to be so yeah i think we've uh, just sussed that out we just don't know the time so, so we're watch hoping for, watch for that kids watch for that or don't. let's move on um something a little more parochial but in a good way wade j michael says any thoughts mp on peregrine racing's weekend dominance in gtd came to an unfortunate end ran a quiet race at mid-ohio but the steve dunn led program looked incredibly strong in detroit with a history of success dating dating back to the relic dp days could we see more we know now we are going to see more because they've just uh signed not just for sprint cup but they're going to do the uh selling six hours of the glen aren't they yeah so here's a not surprised moment for me got to work with steve dinan uh for one weekend uh 16 years ago oh my gosh i'm feeling old here got to work with steve for one weekend under the same tent and it wasn't like super close working to with one another but i was engineering a car in world challenge touring car front-wheel drive turbo Volkswagen Jetta, which was kind of cool, and under the tent with uh, John Prawl, who was running a, I think, BMW E46 M3 or something similar to that in touring car as well. So my driver and Prawl were buddies, worked under the same tent, cool. Steve Dynan was engineering uh, the BMW. So it was just 
knew who he was, dying in a bit of a Bay Area legend in term, just more terms of tuning, not so much racing, but getting a chance to see Dynan back then, listen, talk, overhear, you name it. Boy, this guy has immense suspension tuning knowledge that I was blown away by. And so much greater open wheel background for myself with engineering and on the mechanical side. So at least at this stage in 2005, you know, I had knowledge and wasn't bad, but you know, touring cars, tin tops, whatever, weren't exactly my expertise. Just that one weekend, Graham, uh, under the same tent with Steve Dynan, helped me understand, oh, you got a lot more to learn, dummy, because this guy was just on another level. And it speaks perfectly to his background with the decades of BMW tuning and whatnot. So I just mention all that because hearing that he is working with this, continuing to, but working with this small uh, Peregrine Carbon racing team in this Audi R8, bit of a unloved uh, toy in IMSA GTD these days. I uh, was just thinking, wow, they're going to Detroit where handling is the one differentiator. There's some tracks where power or aero or, you know, a lot of other factors can determine one vehicle's success over another. It just stood out to me as, oh, wow, smallest team in GTD, least experienced team in GTD with the least popular car in GTD. And I absolutely expect them to be up front and possibly win the, win the dang thing, all because of Steve Dynan's immense uh, suspension knowledge and tuning capabilities. And that's what they did. And so I was like, wow, okay. For once my brain was not a total liability. I done thought it and it done happened. And then we heard that, well, but there's some rules that don't involve suspension, uh, that you gotta kind of get right as well. One of them being the world's craziest rule in motor racing. No, you can't go too fast on pit lane in refueling your car in servicing it with new tires you must indeed wait around for a minimum amount of time before you can go back and continue playing race car on the racetrack and so heard that it was something like three seconds below uh, i don't have the exact number but i've heard that it was about three seconds faster than they were supposed to be on that pit stop and indeed, IMSA saw that, said, well, that's not only does it not matter if it's half a second, three seconds, you know, it doesn't matter what shade of uh, a foul that you've run. You've run a foul of a significant rule, disqualified, no longer the winner. Thing I've since heard, Graham, is that on their debut at Mid-Ohio, there might have been, to a much lesser degree, possibly, same thing. Cool. So, yeah, that's the only new wrinkle to add. Not that it matters. I mean, it's a done deal. It's over. They're no longer the winners. Uh, really happy, obviously, for the heart of racing to get their first win. Not the way you'd want it, though, right, in terms of no. were we on the podium, were we spraying champagne from the top step and seen and recognized as the winner. Do we get that pop? No. But nonetheless great team 
that Ian James has assembled for Gabe Newell. Great for them. So wonderful and happy for them. But yeah, um, it's often the minutiae, isn't it, Graham, with uh, new and smaller teams where you go, you might be excelling in so many areas, and we celebrate you for that. But it's some of the, the little ticky-tack items where you go, yeah, hey, this is the minimum pit stop duration that everyone in your class must adhere to, and you didn't miss it by a little bit. You missed it by a lot. And even if you were leading and kicking butt and just on the way romping to a win, hey, those are three seconds you took that no one else can, no one else could. And even if you were the best on the day, you missed this one critical thing that makes us take the win away from you. So I don't think they're going to get that one wrong again. No. No, I think it's that's that's perfectly fair. There are those areas where you can take time legitimately and there's those that uh, the the great big hammer of doom is going to come right down on you let's move forward with another couple for imsa james counter now this is one that i I certainly had experience of and i I suspect yes i know you've had it too uh james says how do i apologize to my significant other for waiting for the delayed imsa race not watching tv with her then falling asleep halfway through because it was so late when it eventually started. Where do you begin with that? I, I can probably give Mrs. Counter um, a the the phone number of a very good lawyer. That, that's all I can really oh. contribute. It sounds to me like, you know, I'm sorry, mate. It, it's, it's end of the road. End of the road. Well, it's been good knowing you, James. Yeah, uh, assuming that you were watching, I actually don't know what, part of the world you're in what time zone and whatnot but yes indycar with that giant crash unfortunately for felix rosenquist knocked over graham a seven thousand pound cement barrier uh from wow. the force of the incra- uh, force of the crash took about an hour and a half to get it was mostly track repair um took them quite some time to get that uh, sorted so as a result and then that was early-ish in the race, too. It was lap 25 or so yeah, of a 70-lap event. So if you factor in the hour, hour and a half lost to that red flag, then there was a red flag late in the race as well. Uh, this pushed on quite a bit. So fully understand why, for those who might have tried to record this, uh, your DVR probably gave you a lot of not what you were looking for. Um would also say that, yeah, depending on where you were in the world, falling asleep is probably very much a, uh, a likely scenario. So we just apologize to your wife, and uh, we're going to tell IMSA to not do it again. We're going to tell yeah, IMSA, even if the preceding race goes under red and is going to delay yours, I it, say send your cars out on track at John, the scheduled I'm time. Sorry. Marshall, you, you deal with James's crowd. I'll just get on now to Imser in the background. Will you just do that, okay? Sure. Yeah. Okay, we'll keep that in too. Um, so I'm just going to call for Imsa to send their cars out at the scheduled time. So if that means they join an IndyCar race in progress, uh, I'm going to give that the thumbs up. Uh, Clement Rosin, you are the penultimate, uh, let's see, the penultimate questionnaire in Imsa. What is your opinion on GTD points qualifying? Do you think it's doing a good job at bringing forward the sprint aspect of the IMSA championship? 
I had hoped, Clement, that this was going to be something that really stood out and became a thing. Hey, let's watch the best and fastest drivers in GTD go for not just getting points, but uh, let's see them do amazing things and go as quickly as they can, and that'll become a spectacle. Maybe I'm of a different opinion than others, but I don't think it's done a thing. I don't think anyone is just the hope that I'd had for anticipation coming for this. It just has not come through. And so I don't think, Clement, that, I mean, I don't know if it's going to change anytime soon, but the idea of points qualifying and doing the, hey, this part of the session has the pro, this part of the session has the am, one sets grid position, one sets or one earns points. I don't know if IMSA is going to walk away from that anytime soon. Just whatever spectacle um, that was hoped it would bring, I don't know if that has landed at all. Uh, let's see. Trevor Gagola, you're going to close IMSA for us. Uh, you said you went to Belle Isle this weekend. I got to talking with the Corvette Racing Squad in the paddock about GTD Pro and the Corvette GTLM to GTD in 2022 exception says assuming they're back will the c8r be forced into gt3 in the tire package or any details on that uh yeah imsa announced that their technical plans for gtd pro involves using the same tires as used in gtd so while they're creating a waiver graham for a corvette to detune their GTLM C8R. Uh, I read nothing in that release that they would also be granting them other exceptions to uh, break them out of the spec approach to uh, both fuel and tires for GTD Pro. So that's that's correct. Good news, by the way, for James Counter and Mrs. Counter. I managed to get through to a very senior member of him, so just now off air. And the great news is that the way you can say sorry, and this comes from the very highest, is they will fly you first class, wherever you are in the world, to the next IMSA race at Riverside, um, where you could enjoy the hospitality, all the hospitality they can throw at you for the next time that Riverside features on an IMSA calendar. Absolutely amazing stuff. Thank you very much, IMSA. Beautiful. All right, Graham, where are we going next? Gotta be, gotta be, Weck Aslam's Elms and Aco ACO Rules Racing. Matthew License, you open this section. A lot of positive noises from Jim Glickenhaus. Well, uh, just stay away from him after a burrito. Uh, from Jim Glickenhaus <laughs> after Portimao, how did you rate the performance of the team, Graham? And do you think the future of the program looks bright for further possible customers to bring more of those cars, the 007s, to the grid? Um. I thought there was some encouraging stuff there. Uh, the news from the rather the, the kind of the, the smoke signals, if you like, from the team before Portimao were not to expect anything huge. Richard Westbrook uh, decided to change that script in the final free practice session and found two seconds out of that car. They've got a lot of work to do. They, amongst others particularly the Porsche GTE Pro cars, were in pretty significant tyre trouble um, at Portimao. Saw some horrendous-looking uh, blisters that have been coming off tyres, rear tyres in particular, um, at Portimao. The final turn there absolutely murders them. Um, 
first things first, it's a very pretty car. Uh, it sounds great. It goes well. They've got a lot of work to do in terms of making sure that they can extract that performance and extract it over one and two stints on those tyres. Monza, where they've got two cars for the very first time, will be interesting. There was the mistake. That mistake, the way I saw it, um, was... Yeah, the police are coming to get them for that mistake, if you can hear the background. Um, (laughs) uh, That was all on Ryan Briscoe, so I saw it. I think Jim disagrees with me. Well, he's allowed to do that, but so I've got the microphone. And uh, that was all on Ryan Briscoe. Clearly thought he'd he'd, uh, cleared the GT car. Hadn't. That led to... Uh, dramas of three separate cars and um, in recovering the car to the pits the the clutch was damaged and that that basically told the tale for the remainder uh, of the race i think we'll be in a better position to know just what they've got in performance terms uh when we get to monza um i'm significantly less worried now by the way about all this nonsense about stratification why I think they're going to let this one run through the year. Clearly, the, the Toyota has a performance um, uh, gap to the Glickenhaus at the moment. You'd expect it. Uh, the Alpine is roughly in performance terms where the uh, Toyota is, but can't go as long on fuel. Um, but the main reason is, that the bigger issue is is where they are compared to the, uh, the LMP2s. And what we now know is that that will be dealt with into next season when we get the next big OEM, Peugeot, arriving, and that will be dealt with with a new Michelin tyre, which I know has been tried on the current brand of hypercars. I believe Toto have tested with it. I believe that Glickenhaus have tried it too. And I think on a regular Class 1 track, that gives them somewhere between one and a half and two seconds. That, on top of the performance advantage we've already got, gives them the stratification we're looking for. Um, we can worry a bit less about whether or not there might be stuff done to the LMP2s because I don't think that's going to happen at all. But as far as Glickenhaus is concerned, very positive. I thought they had a great spirit in the paddock. It was great to uh, see that passion coming out. Uh, they know where the work has got to be done. Principally, that's in terms of extracting the pace, working the tyres better, better work in the pits. That will come with a bit more practice for the crew uh, but i think we've got some positives to take from it albeit that the 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 absolute results was not where they wanted to be there we go few more questions on the glickenhausian uh overtaking of whack uh, how much would the budget estimate be to run a glickenhaus 007 mm. and what p2 teams would have the backing to maybe do it. That comes from RFSFC, and uh, won't, I won't even play with what that acronym no, means. No, don't. Let's, let's not. Let's, there's an FSC in there. We don't want to go there. Right. Um, I think the answer is, from what Jim is telling us, broadly speaking, what a privateer budget for an LMDH might be. Got to bear in mind that they've got to buy the car. To give you, for instance, for a regular WEC season, and this is not a regular WEC season because, of course, we've got fewer races, but when we get back to seven, eight races, it's somewhere between three and a half, four million euro a season to run a single um, LMP2 car in the the full WC, including Le Mans. There is something of a saving, about 10% saving if you run two. So the overall cost per car 
come down by about 10% because, of course, you've got shared logistics, some shared uh, personnel, etc. Uh, so the estimate from the ACO that's been given to me for the cost of running an LMDH for a customer team is somewhere between 5 and 10 million euro per year. So uh, judging by what we've been told by Jim, it's going to be around that. There might be some savings because you're not having to deal with a hybrid package. Um, there might be some swings and roundabouts in terms of the, the cost of the basic spine of the car, etc. Just as interesting, though, MP, is the fact that that's a chassis around which you could do your own thing. The chassis it, you know, is a you know, piece of intellectual property from Glickenhaus. There's no reason why that car shouldn't be built with a different body and a different power uh, powertrain at the rear and be called something different. And that's another part of this converged process that has real potential if that car shows, shows uh, starts to did show you just real say if that car sharts oh that, that might be my I favorite did. part of any I episode did. <laughs> i did uh, ah, <laughs> the sharting glickenhaus scuderia clamor cameron glickenhaus 007 the shart so oh boy if, if it starts if it starts to show if it starts uh, to real, show <laughs> real potential then I think there might be some quite interesting conversations that begin to emerge. But uh, which P2 teams might have the backing? Well, it's the same list. The P2 teams, that might be looking to do LMDH, and that's a fairly long list. You know, some of them looking for factory-run programs, some of them looking for, um, you know, part-funded, semi-privateer, semi-factory-backed kind of programs, some looking to just do it their own way. So the reality here is... We have a huge number of unknowns. Uh, I know there's a question a bit later about uh, the world beyond P2 teams because that's an important part of this picture that I think a lot of people have overlooked. Teams other than the current LMP2 teams that might be looking to step up to the hypercar class in WEC, that's a thing, okay? It's not done yet. There are some extraordinary stories around there that are in preparation and that I frankly could write today, but but without really having nailed down the ins and outs. But there's every reason to hope and expect that we'll see some pretty major players from across endurance racing, not just in the P2 uh, arena, starting to um, investigate what the possibilities are for getting a package together and to be at the sharp end of the grid. Sharts and in, ins and outs. Sharts and the grid. Yes. Sharts and ins and outs. The Graham Goodwin story. Okay, let's see. Where else do we go here? Uh, Geronimo Lazos. How you doing, Geronimo? Says, is there a possibility that Alpine is going to be in the top echelon with a new car, be it LMH or LMDH, LMD Husky, as we call it, in deference to your beautiful dog? Uh, says, hey, keep it civil, because Juan Pablo Montoya may be listening. <laughs> right, well... The, uh, the bit of information that emerged during the Portimao weekend is that uh, Alpine have taken delivery of a second Alpine A480 ex-Rebellion R13 chassis, not a previously raced Rebellion car, a brand new Orica-built chassis to that design, which is going to be their primary race car for Le Mans this year. Shows intent, doesn't it? Shows they're taking this seriously. Shows that they're prepared to invest in this program, which you have to say it's designed to do two things and two things only. The major reason they're doing it is to try to catch the attention of Renault 
uh, for you know the potential for Alpine to join the the grid in the new era, either with an LMH or an LMDH car. And in answer to other questions, I know we've got them here um, from Damien Peachman amongst others, uh, also from uh, Matthew Licence as well. Uh, other than knowing that that's the game. We've heard nothing from the Renault organization about that. The second thing they're doing, by the way, is they're giving, and this is an incredibly important part of the picture in the background here with these cars, provenance to those cars. What does that mean? That means a race car uh, is a cost center. It's something you spend money on, isn't it? You spend money on it, you go racing with it. It's successful, it's not successful. It uh, falls out of regulation. It's then an ex-race car and usually a garage queen of some description or other, unless it's successful or unless it's something a bit special, in which case it can then become quite a valuable asset. And this is the newsy bit, if you like, of my little offering here, MP. It's something we've seen in the past with Ferrari race cars. They hold their value. Porsches certainly do. I was having a conversation uh, the other day about the 911 GT America. Remember those, MP? Wow. Which was, uh, which was the Grand Am-specific um, uh, I'm trying to think what it was called. Is uh, what was the class called back then? It's just GT, Rolex GT, just I believe. GT. Yeah, and keep so there was an Audi, a special Audi R8. There was, and there was, there was a special. And there was a special Aston Martin too. I remember seeing that next to a GT3 car, and the what they'd effectively done was to remove all the really tricky um, aero bits. But the, the reason that came up was you'd do well, um, or badly rather if you had any kind of limited edition Porsche race car of any description for that not to be something that's worth more in the future. It's an asset. And I think in the case of the Alpine, they certainly are assets. I'm fully aware who owns at least one of those cars. Um, it is it, it is very obvious why they own those cars, because they are someone who is passionate about the sport, passionate about the history, and it knows that they can spend some money on a significant race car and for that car to be likely worth significantly more uh, in the future simply because it's raced at Le Mans and, and they hope has a chance of being successful at Le Mans. The other program, and it's one we've talked about on the Weekend Sports Cars before, and this is the newsy bit, sorry, um, is the Bentley program for LMDH. And I will break the news right here and now. Um, We're bearing the lead, I'm, by the way, but hey, that just means yeah. you got to listen all the way through each episode. You do, um, which is that is not going to happen now. Uh, that the Bentley LMDH program, my understanding and confirmed now from several sources, is something that was likely to happen until very recently, no longer will happen in 23 or 24. I believe that to be now dead. Uh, quite exactly why it's not been made clear. It may simply be that that Bentley program re uh, required a Porsche LMDH, a customer car, to, to be the basis for it. With what I'm hearing in terms of interest about those Porsche LMDHs, it very simply might be there is not going to be a car or the cars available within the required timescale. It could be that simple. But the Bentley LMDH will not be happening. There will, by the way, be those on the internet that will go, it was never going to happen in the first place. Oh, just, just flying a kite, blah, blah, click, play, blah, rubbish. The straight answer was live program, real people involved at a high level, 
and it's simply now, I'm afraid, is going to be uh, going to join uh, that long list MP of projects of sports cars that will never race, uh, certainly not in the first years of LMDH. So that's the thing. Uh, Alpine, I hope they bite. I hope they, they come forward and do this. The clock is most certainly ticking. We've dealt with this on the, pa- uh, on the show in the past, uh, that uh, Signatech are keeping... Uh, Alpine and uh, the Renault Sport organization fully briefed on the progress. They are asked to present on a regular basis to the powers that be at Renault. We can only hope that that's going to catch their eye and that we get another manufacturer to add to that list. Yeah, because we like a lot of manufacturers, man. Let's see, where shall we go next in your world? Damien, go ahead, brother. The bottom question is... Pretty pertinent, MP. Um, it is. Which, which, Why don't I read it to you then? Please do. Rocky just jumped up on the table. How you doing, buddy? Hey. Yeah. Thanks for showing me your butt. That's one thing I needed in the middle of the show uh, while we're talking about sharks. Uh, he says, after Lamar comes, the two flyaway races. What's the scuttlebutt? Hey, Doug, you're on, on theme here. Around mm-hmm. the paddock about if both the Fuji six hours and Bahrain eight hours will be held as planned. Are there any backup plans to replace a round? Should it be canceled? And it's a great question. We know it's a little ways down the road, but I mean, we're still dealing with uh, COVID travel restrictions and new challenges that pop up even this week, Ram. Well, okay. I'll tell you exactly what I know right now. They are two completely different prospects. Um, unless we get a major turnaround, I don't see the Bahrain race being under terribly much threat. I know there's red listing at the moment for the UK. We've got a ways to go before we get uh, to that point. And I don't regard the Bahrain race under being under serious threat right now. Japan, Fuji, significantly more so. And for several reasons. One is the nature of the um, the challenge in terms of the, the logistical and health control uh, parts of that. Uh, we wait and find out exactly what's going to happen, for instance, with the delayed Summer Olympics uh, in Japan. Uh, is there a contingency? First and foremost, there is. Uh, there have been a number of circuits mentioned, a number of circuits mentioned. You tease around on the internet, you'll find out what some of those prospects are. I did ask the question very directly with what I believe to be um, the chosen potential alternative and was told that both the one that I'd expressed as choice A and choice B were both incorrect. Um, the reason why this is pertinent right now is is if you were going to freight uh, by sea the equipment that you would require for Fuji, that would need to leave straight after Monza, which is next month. You'd then need to, need to likely air freight uh, everything else post Le Mans because of the delay obviously to the uh, to the calendar for that race so it is a live pro- project there is a lot of effort going into um, planning for the contingency they did that very effectively last year uh, by the way with the LMS with the WC and for that matter with the Asian Le Mans series and the uh, you know picking up everything and effectively transferring it all to the Gulf uh, you're going to see more of it. I've no doubt about that. We, we continue to have challenges to do with, you know, tiptoeing around various uh, restrictions that we've got on travel. I've heard of another one linked in with a race that I'm covering later this year, just 
immediately before we started recording. It does add to the, the challenges for everybody, the championships themselves, the teams, the drivers, and for that matter, we travelling media that go with it. It is, you know, it is not an easy thing to get these things up and running and then have certainty that you can continue to have them up and running. We absolutely want to see people back trackside uh, right now. My view, I'm happier right for this moment that we're taking the cautious route. Uh, I'm not very happy that others aren't. Um, that, that strikes me as being, I'd rather be part of the solution than part of the problem. So, yes, there are blackout plans, uh, plural. Um, they have looked at lots of alternatives. They've not been ready to call it yet. I would not be remotely surprised if we heard that called and the solution called within the next, let's say, two to three weeks. Oh, good stuff. See, it's got a Jeffrey Van Ketteridge. Hey, Jeffrey. Mm-hmm. says, what do you think racing team Nederland is going to do in the good old U.S. of A, Graham? says, full IMSA season maybe or just the big endurance races? in combination with WEC, and will this affect their Le Mans ambitions? It's a great question. A long, long chat with Fritz van Aert, um, the, uh, the the force behind Racing Team Netherlands. I do think you're going to see them in Insta next year. Whether or not that uh, runs alongside something outside of the USA, I think is some doubt about. He, he's certainly not been very happy with the way that the Pro-Am part of LMP2 was rolled out. I think they're happier after an opportunity to talk to the rule makers in Portimao. And we saw the first fruits of that discussion and discussions other teams have been having with the fact that uh, unlike the opening round, there was a full podium for LMP2 uh, Pro-Am at, uh, at Portimao, something that, to be blunt, should have been there in the first place. Uh, it's not a dissimilar situation than we saw in the early days of the WEC when they felt the need, correctly, to reflect the efforts and the investment of the LMP1 privateer um, uh, entrants who eventually, um, after some dissatisfaction, got their uh, own podium and representation in things like press conferences and press releases. might sound like nothing, but if you're the guy having to justify the expenditure and there is an element of return on investment. It's very important. Uh, so do I think they're heading stateside? Yes, I do. Uh, what will their program be? I'm not going to announce it for them. I think that's the incorrect way of doing it. Who will they run it with? Well, all signs point towards TTS Racing. I do find that actually quite a surprise that you would bring a whole effort uh, in LMP2 for a full season or even a kind of an endurance season. Uh, with a European-based team, but you can only presume, therefore, that there's plans afoot for that. Um, and should they come, which I think they will, I think they will add immeasurably to the show. Um, they produce a great race car. They're quick. Fritz van Aerd gets better and better every time he gets behind the wheel. And they are, again, it's another one of my, uh, my kind of touchstones, I know, people of passion about the sport, and we know how much fans... Uh, IMSA fans enjoy people who've got passion about the sport and uh, get the opportunity to talk to the guys as and when they do make it stateside again. Um, I think you'll all find that out. It's uh, there's, there's, there's no racing nutter quite like a Dutch nutter, I'd like to say. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> From sharts to Dutch nutters. Oh, boy. This is an earmuffs episode of the Week in Sports Cars. 
Where uh, where else shall we go, my friend? What other questions uh, pique your interest? There's a, there's a, there's a couple here. Um, Stuart Hart says, on Coventry at Portimao, I hinted at current GTE teams looking to prototypes. Can I put any names to this? What could be the knock-on effect of the future of GT? Uh, I won't quite yet for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I don't like making people's announcements for them when it's, when it's not a direct reporting of what they've told me directly. I am aware of a number, and it's not one and it's not two, and don't take it from that that it's just three either, of current GT teams um, that are very closely looking at the commercial aspects of uh, the hypercar class. And I expect that we're going to see more than one um, putting the toe in the water, whether or not it's as early as 23, don't know yet. Um, what prospects does that have for GT in the future there? I think that entirely depends on what the solution is that the ACO can come up with for uh, for GT. We, we should be hearing that. We should be hearing about LMP2. We should be hearing about a range of things uh, at the Le Mans 24 Hours this year in August. So um, I think the, the answer here is there's going to be a recasting here without a shadow of a doubt of um, – of the status quo in sports car racing. I happen to think that's a good thing. Uh, there's clearly a lot of factory investment coming in, but that leaves us with that hugely important group of privateer, professional privateer teams um, that have serviced ACO rules racing for such a long time. I think it's going to be the same in IMSA, to be honest with you, MP, where they're going to be looking to see uh, what the opportunities are in this new world, and they're going to start to think about what uh, some of those opportunities are for them as cars and programs become available. We know there are significant GT teams and significant LMP2 teams that are currently bidding for factory programs. We also know, let's not forget, that these are the teams that have been very successfully garnering um, very productive relationships with some very wealthy people and there's no doubt in my mind that they'll have been talking to them uh, over the last year or two as this picture's been emerging about what it is that those people want to do with their own racing with their own investment remember i talked a little while ago about the uh, provenance marketplace these could be assets for for those people and, and for those teams moving forward i think it's it's another page in the book, MP. At the moment, we're all getting really excited about what brands are coming. Get ready to be really excited about who's coming in the customer market. Get ready for that because it's a whole different perspective on this era. It's not just about whether or not you'll have four or six or eight or 12 factory back cars. It's about whether or not you'll have four, six, eight or 12 privateers to go along with them in one series, two series, the big races, you name it. That's why it's exciting, because this really is a little bit back to the future. It's a little bit Group C. It's a little bit like that. And for me, that is just as exciting as whether or not we get one, two, three, or four uh, more factories to bid for this. Where else should we go here, brother, that... Uh there's an interesting one next up from Gustavo yeah. Bamba, who says, uh, his question is about the Peugeot hypercar program. And Peugeot have been pretty open about their 
uh, technical package. And Gustavo says with 680 brake horsepower from the internal combustion engine, 272 brake horsepower from the hybrid, how will the ACO and the FIA know the total power is within the rules? With the right tools, they could have 950 horsepower for a few seconds at a track like Le Mans. That means that Glickenhaus would be at a disadvantage because they only have 680 horsepower maximum from their internal combustion engine. Hope the FIA and the ACO have good sensors to control the total power output. Torque sensors is the answer. Um, and they have a huge amount of confidence that those torque sensors and the electronic gubbins that responds to the fact that they're there to measure performance will be able to control that. So the in, in kind of easy to understand terms while you're deploying your hybrid boost power output to the tune of that hybrid boost is removed from the internal combustion side of the equation you would should never be able to exceed the maximum approved power what are the consequences should the uh, sensors show that you've done that dire i think is the answer uh, up to and including disqualification um, so the reality here is that the um, the rule set has been designed to accommodate a array of different cars. The uh, Le Mans hypercars with the LMH cars with the power uh, pack you describe or the powertrain you describe, Gustavo. Something like the Glickenhaus where all of its power is delivered by the engine all of the time. And then, of course, the LMDH cars coming in with potentially more powerful engines than some of the hyper the uh, initial hypercars but with the um the mild hybrid system if you like as well so that's all been accommodated in this technical um these technical regulations you're absolutely right that the ability to monitor respond uh to any kind of um offense outside that are critical to making sure this works but that's what they tell us that they can do and they seem extremely confident in doing that let's see uh where shall we go here we go uh xavier ayaris says maybe a bit of left field probably without an answer graham have you heard anything of ours doing lmdh and you might have to explain what that uh, is well, so aris is a russian limousine <laughs> producer so it is it is amongst other things it is the brand that provides the state limousine for vladimir putin okay an array of other um, specialist generally vip vehicles that go along with that why are we raising this here if you don't follow the european le mans series and a little bit of WEC, um Alongside the previous Alpine-badged Orica 07 with a rehull homologation and a separate chassis plate to go with it, for a couple of three years now, we've had the Aurus 01, which is the program brought to G-Drive Racing by Roman Rusinov, which means that we've got two cars this year in the European Le Mans series and will have at Le Mans as well. Operated under G-Drive Racing with Algar Pro Racing as their service provider this year. The reigning Asian Le Mans Series champions, they're in LMS, as I say, badged as the Aris Zero One with exactly that. What does that mean? It effectively means you re-homologate the same car again with a badge for, of a, in this case, boutique manufacturer for a fee which goes, of course, to the organizing body. What have I heard? I've heard they've looked at it. Um, 
am I saying that Aris have looked at this and spending 10 million euros or more? No. I've heard that the people involved in the racing programs are looking to see just exactly what there might be involved here in bringing forward a brand, you would presume Aris, um, to fly the Russian flag once we're allowed to do that on a world championship level again. Um, the uh, Do I think it's going to happen immediately? Not immediately. Do I think it's real? Yes, I do. Uh, it's not the only program of this sort that we're hearing about out there. If you would ask me how many of those kind of programs I've heard about as a possibility, I would tell you that number is in somewhere into double figures uh, beyond the Cadillac. We're not talking here Cadillac. We're not talking here even Alpine. But there's lots of people talking about trying to interest people in doing it. Um, do you remember very early on, MP, we talked about, um, in Weekend Sports Cars, we talked about this process of understood to be evaluating a um a dpi program and my explanation of that was every single manufacturer is evaluating in parentheses a dpi program because one two three or four of the chassis manufacturers have sent the proposal to do that um, it's not quite that this time this is about those big professional teams looking for who they know in the industry to see who might fill that gap for them between an lmp2 budget and uh, a Le Mans hypercar uh, budget all the time about you know what it is we do for a living and I enjoy the structure that this podcast gives us to to, to carry on that it's a, it's a it's a not a phrase that's very popular a mission to explain there's so much to explain about sports car racing endurance racing and the opportunity to do that both through what I do with race broadcast whether or not I'm working as an analyst or as a color commentator or as a lead commentator and then again as a journalist in writing and then again as a podcaster with with mp on the weekend sports cars it's a joy to be able to do that and if that's brought more of you into this audience to hear what we might be waiting and seeing and you've got a few flavors of that from both of us with this this edition um then that's 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 what i'm here for that's what i love to do and that's what keeps me in this sport in this business uh, and has kept me in this business through a time that's not been very easy commercially for anybody. It's not easy today uh, commercially for anybody. But uh, I'm grateful for your listening. I thoroughly enjoy doing the LMS. It's great to be back this season. I don't think uh, I want to be going anywhere soon with that one. Anything more kicking around of that? Or are we going to have a bit of general fun to finish off? We've got about 15 minutes, my friend. So steer us wherever you decide. Let's. Um, there's one here from Right Turn Love. If you've not read it, I'd like you to read it, and we'll answer that one last. Okay. But uh, Damien Peachman says, "Is there still a place for the Dacia Logan at the Nurburgring 24 Hours?" Now, this is the car that was, oh, what, two minutes off a reasonably slow pace at the Nurburgring 24 Hours. If I don't know if you know what a Dacia Logan is, but Dacia Logan is based on the underpinnings of an old Renault Clio. Uh, it is a budget saloon car built by a Renault offshoot in Romania. Uh, it is basically, was for many years, the cheapest car you could buy uh, in Europe. I watched and the the narrated, uh, a narrated video from one driver about to jump you. into it. Oh, it, it's truly, oh, it is it's so good. So good. Uh, that's exactly, I mean, for me, is there still a place for it? There absolutely should be. Um, I think, you know, it should never be 
The Nobel Winning 24 Hours should never be about just uh, overly aggressive 24-hour sprints from a driver screaming at everybody else to get out of his way. Traffic is the key to making that the spectacle that it is. And frankly, uh, all the time you've got people who are uh, mad enough to allow themselves to be strapped in a Dacia Logan or Dacia Logan and go out there and do it, they should be accommodated. They did strip out a lot of the slower cars some years ago. Uh, we did have some remarkably slow stuff in numbers. But I think as long as you've actually got you know, a relatively limited number of cars that are significantly off that GT3 SP9 pace, I just think it adds something to it in exactly the same way as the Opel Manta adds something to it, in exactly the same way as the alternatively fueled Dodge Viper adds something to it. You look for something a little bit quirky. You look for something that someone really has put together as their race program in their own garage with a group of like-minded lunatics um, at the most lunatic race in the world. And the day that we stop them from coming will be, a, I think, a pretty sad day indeed, Damien. There we go. Uh, let's see. Don Gregory says, hey, guys. Always been curious as to why sanctioning bodies that govern prototypes have a huge grotesque fin on the rear cowling, which, in my opinion, ruins the silhouette of the car, while IndyCar relies on a much shorter version. Would a shorter version of the prototype fin be just as effective knowing that IndyCar speeds are comparable? Well, mm. we have a fairly significant item here, Don, that would answer the question, and that is these two types of vehicles are absolutely nothing alike. So what you see on an open-wheel car that lacks fenders and therefore lacks the building of immense uh, underbody air pressure and lift, um, these are apples and oranges. So I uh, would say that while you see a very uh, short spine that runs down the engine cover on Indy cars and uh, even the front of the chassis, uh, these are just similar or actually identical reasons, that being to help create stability for the cars in yaw, as in while sliding sideways or spinning. Uh, the huge grotesque fin you mentioned does indeed spoil the air from grabbing on to rounded bodywork and lifting it. That's... Ooh. That's the key takeaway here. Air, uh, knowing that the properties of lift, um, air certainly loves rounded shapes to pull on, pull upwards, or if it's an inverted rounded shape like you would see at the bottom of a wing profile, to pull down. We've learned, and this is an evolution, that, hey, uh, with prototypes specifically in all the yardage of bodywork and rounded shapes plus all that pressure building in the wheel wells which have been vented uh, with the rectangular openings above the uh, the tires to help vent pressure there and bleed off anything that might help them take off in a spin well that big fin at the back is central in keeping the cars on the ground or as much on the ground as possible uh, in bit of a spin problem or otherwise so know that it might not be appealing to all in terms of the look 
but just consider this no different than any of the other safety evolutions you've seen come into the sport uh, to help keep our beloved drivers safe and uh, employed for years to come. Don, Don, worth looking, by the way. I'll give you a couple of references so you can see some of the differences. Look uh, on YouTube or wherever else for Mark Genet's accident at the Test Day at Le Mans in the Peugeot 908. Uh, Jamie Campbell-Walter's accident at Monza in, I think it was, Le Mans series. They're the kind of accidents they were looking to mitigate. It's an awful word, but that's what it is. Then take a look at Brendan Hartley's accident uh, in the Porsche at Silverstone where he came together with the Golf Racing uh, GTE and Porsche and see how the car behaves when it's got airborne sideways. See what that does uh, in terms of mitigating the effect of the accident. The, the best way to explain it is to see examples of it in action. Um, you know, am I a fan of it? I'll be honest with you, it's never really bothered me that much. I know it's a big thing for a lot of people out there, but the um, the, you know, parentheses, great honking fin, never really bothered me all that much. Does it ruin the profile of a car? Well, it affects the profile of a car. But um, I, it's never been something that uh, has never kept me up wake, wake at night. Um, it's, it's not, to my mind, as significant a visual impact on a car, as I'm watching them through, as... Um, one of the things that Damien Peachman has asked about in uh, in one of his questions here, which uh, I think we'll move to that one next, MP, where Damien says, can the front end of the BMW M4 GT3 be unseen? Um, it's that, that's a great big, um, you know, uh, visual impact, the grill on that car, which, by the way, they announced today will be on track uh, for the uh, the test days for the spa 24 hours not uh, where the car will not race there it'll have its first race just after the spa outing in the vln around the nurburgring but um if it's safety related i'll take the hit there we go what else uh what else should we talk about here let's have a quick look Ricky Zagata says, with so many announced and yet to be announced factory pro, uh, pro programs, is this the perfect time to be a sports car driver? With so many seats available, which series will take the biggest hit in the driver market? This comes, doesn't it, MP, not long after we've had conversations, and I know the words jury in hand came up in this, where we've had a lot of talented guys on the sidelines, potentially likely mostly because of driver rankings this should be a bit of a philip it should be a bit of a boost to the driver marketplace it's certainly something that you know i get regular calls and emails and conversations in paddocks from people who maybe are not at the moment on the top of those lists but that that should be you know at the moment um moving around and looking for where those opportunities might come from and are asking for advice and guidance as to where they should be looking. It's it's an exciting time, and for many a worrying time as well. They don't want to miss that boat. Graham, let's close at your request. RTL, no, not the German uh, network, but Right Turn Lover, who says, completely out of left field, what was the sports car racing team order possibly one with good intentions that hashtag you personally remember to have created the worst public perception. Ooh. 
Ooh, spicy. Which it does like a one. I mean, I must admit, the ones that spring to mind are not necessarily ones in sports cars, but rather more to do with F1. Um, particularly, I can remember back in the day with uh, Ms. Mrs. Schumacher and Barrichello, there were a number there that kind of came immediately to mind. But um, this, I think, has probably been prompted by the somewhat theatrical scenes we saw in the latter stages of the, the eight hours of Portimao, where the Bentley, the, Bentley, the uh, Toyota uh, team bosses reversed the positions, then reversed them back. And the explanation for that was we were told that the following car could be quicker. Uh, they wanted to secure one, two. Uh, they gave them two laps to prove it. They couldn't prove it. And they were told to reverse it back again. It, I, I think my co-commentator, um, Martin Haven was talking there about effectively kind of respect for the audience. I don't tend to disagree with him. I think you really just shouldn't play like that. Um, anything where you've got overt team orders where they're not, don't seem to be required, uh, tends to raise hackles. We saw it a little bit, didn't we? When, uh, Mr. Alonso was aboard the Toyota, it was pretty clear. There was, there was a favored, um, crew and it was the one that featured Fernando Alonso because that was where you get the bigger headlines um, that didn't go well with anybody outside of people who are fans of Fernando Alonso and the management team at Toyota I don't want to put this all on Toyota though because you know, it's something we've seen before for a number of uh, sports car teams none that immediately, immediately spring to mind I'm sure at the time we probably have and gnashed our teeth but anything that you can recall mp we've certainly discussed this ad nauseum on the show thinking back to 24 hours of le mans in 2016 ford's debut and gte pro and we know that none of this was played out publicly but we do know behind the scenes that i guess we could call it team orders it was more as we were told a team should we say threat is that the right word uh, ultimatum oh, possibly right not for their own team but we'd heard that there was some very not nice oh the, oh, the Rissy stuff go oh, yeah going on between the ford team and Rissy competizione and uh hey we see a thing on your car Rissy ferrari that we could go to the stewards with and probably get you penalized and ruin your race, and you're currently challenging us pretty hard for the win. So, uh, again, this is all alleged. We're not claiming this to be fact, but we've heard this enough to make us think that we're not totally raising something uh, out of left field. Um, That, yeah, there was a we-want-to-win-this-race we don't want you to win this race. You're currently trying to win this race. And if you don't stop trying to win this race, we're going to push the issue and ask for the stewards to penalize you for, I forget what it was. Was it a number panel that wasn't lit? Or Again, I time has scrubbed that from my exact uh, memory. But that's what I recall in terms of a, I don't know if it's a team order, but more of a, a team ultimatum between rivals. And at least for what we saw, well, Ford did win the race, and I believe Risi Ferrari finished second. So yeah. is that the tacit uh, acknowledgement that 
there was a uh, non-signed, non-legal agreement, non-binding, but it honored. Uh, okay, well, um, hmm, I guess we don't win this one because you really could mess up our race if you pushed to get us penalized. So again, allegedly, but that sure is one we've spoken about before in the show multiple times that still jumps out as the, oh, I don't know if you and I are members of the public, Graham, I don't know if we perceive that as very good or nice or sporting, but uh, I guess we got to roll out Juan Montoya to kind of sort of close the show. It is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. Um, that's it for this week's edition of the Weekend Sportscast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks again so much for sending in the questions that have kept us entertained and hopefully you too. Lots to chew over there. Lots more to come with some of those storylines eking their way out more publicly than just this little podcast. But for now, I'm going to say thank you once again to Cooper Tyres, to the Justice Brothers and to TorontoMotorsports.com, but particularly uh, to you, Marshall Pruitt. He's been Marshall Pruitt in the States. I've been Graham Goodwin here in the UK. You've been the audience, and a growing audience it is too, knocking on the door now of 7 million downloads for the Marshall Pruitt podcast. We'll be with you next week. <laughs>